Um, this is the uh, season at CC where uh, we often get an embarrassing, uh, rich, embarrassingly rich flow of great speakers. Uh, tomorrow night, Jonathan Alter, the senior editor and noted columnist at Newsweek, will be here. That's at 7.30 in Gaylord Hall. Uh, to have Sanford Levinson and Jonathan Alter back-to-back -back is, is really a, a remarkable uh, set of opportunities for us. Um, in these uh, days where you get posters and digest reminders and Sandy's mugshot has been on the web page for several days and you're always just a, a couple of Google keystrokes away from finding out everything you want to know about anybody, including Sandy Levinson, on your own, it seems to make a formal introduction a little less appropriate. Uh, yes, Andy Levinson got his undergraduate degree at Duke, and he got his PhD in government at Harvard, and yes, he got his law degree from Stanford, and yes, he's written 250 articles in a number of books, and uh, has written for the New York Times and the New Republic in a variety of places, and, and he's a very famous guy. But uh, to introduce the man, uh, I think one needs to go beyond what you can find on Google. Uh, Academically, I think Sandy's probably most notorious for uh, an essay he did uh, on the troublesome Second Amendment, the, the embarrassing Second Amendment, uh, in which uh, he argued, uh, in spite of, of what are some personal um, sort of progressive tendencies, that it is just difficult, both historically and interpretively, to interpret the Second Amendment as allowing the federal government to control the individual's possession of guns. Uh, it, it, embarrassing because, in many ways, the Second Amendment, well interpreted, seems to endorse the uh, power of individuals to pack heat, or at the very least, the power of the states to regulate that question and not uh, the federal government. Um, Sandy Levinson is also the sort of person who uh, once remarked to me that uh, he thinks uh, the greatest essay on film about the silliness of racial and gender discrimination is the great film Babe about the talking pig. And uh, it, was, it is Sandy Levinson who, uh, in his own complex way, deeply loves his country. If you ever visit him at his office at the law school at the University of Texas, you will find it has now become a museum of stars and stripes flag iconography with every sort of version of, of the stars and stripes and its many symbolic meanings uh, just surrounding you, along with a number of stacks of papers, uh, in his office. The, the important thing to understand about Sandy is that he's congenitally incapable of believing any conventional wisdom about anything. It's not that he's contrarian. He doesn't sort of relish in taking a position counter to every, everyone else. But he has to think through every problem uh, for himself. And those, that process often leads him in some uh, quite amazing uh, directions. Um, as I told the class this morning, you might think on paper that someone like Sandy Levinson would be curmudgeonly or a little bit of a son of a bitch. That is difficult. Uh, but the reason, above all, that I'm so delighted to have uh, one of my heroes here is that he is uh, the most generous, 
political scientist in the business that I have ever known. Generous of his time, generous with writing letters of recommendation, eager to learn from the works of unknowns, eager to applaud creative original ideas, goes out of his way to be as, as terrific a supporter of, uh, of his profession as anyone I have ever known. So please join me in welcoming a, a wonderful man, Sandy Levinson. Thank you, and I'll say what I said this morning, that um, it's always intimidating to, uh, I don't get that many introductions like this, but it's always intimidating uh, to live up to any introduction beyond name, rank, and serial number. Um, what I want to do is to um, explain, is this getting feedback? Because I've also got a something for, for a podcast, so I think it might, let's see if this works and you can tell me if it doesn't, is to explain why it is that I think we have a significantly defective constitution. And let me put this in the context of two museums, both of which happen to be in Philadelphia. The first was in 1987, during the bicentennial year. Uh, there was a wonderful exhibit actually designed by one of my closest friends about the 1787 Philadelphia Convention. And at the end of it, you were given the opportunity to join the Philadelphians in signing the Constitution. And in fact, I thought long and hard about it, largely because the original Constitution had a number of quite objectionable compromises with slavery. But I decided to sign it, in part because Frederick Douglass, who's the greatest of the black abolitionists, uh, had given a great speech, I think a somewhat implausible speech, but a great speech saying the Constitution correctly understood was that it was anti-slavery, not pro-slavery. But in any event, my view was that if it was good enough for Frederick Douglass, it was good enough for me. And in fact, I wrote a book during that time called Constitutional Faith, which concluded with a chapter on this visit to the museum and why it is that I was willing to sign and thus to signify a certain amount of faith in the Constitution. In 2003, July 3rd, 2003, there was an advanced preview of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, and I had been on an academic advisory committee of that quite remarkable edifice, which is well worth seeing if you are in Philadelphia. And that concludes with a trip called through, I think it's Founders Hall, in which there are life-size statues, really quite remarkable, of all the people in Philadelphia. And you realize exactly how short James Madison was and exactly how tall and dominating George Washington was. Um, and there's a statue of Alexander Hamilton full stride with all of the energy that one associates in Hamilton. And again, you're given an opportunity to join these framers by signing the Constitution. And this time I said no. And what was the difference between 1987 and 2003? Well, in a sense, it's, it's quite simple. In 1987, like most law professors, I think, I concentrated on the Constitution as a protection of rights. 
And so it was understandable that what gave me greatest pause in signing the Constitution was the extent to which the original Constitution protected the rights of slaveholders. And then to wrestle with, well, are there other good things in the Constitution? Remember, the first Constitution didn't have a Bill of Rights. But one looked at the Constitution primarily as an assignment of powers to government, and presuming assignment to do a variety of good things, plus a protection of certain rights. And in 1987, looking at the Constitution that way, I thought that the Constitution assigned to the national government uh, adequate power. Uh, there's some controversy about that. Some people believe that the post-New Deal state goes beyond what the Constitution correctly understood would allow. I don't share that view, but it really doesn't matter, frankly. Uh, <clears throat> I was quite happy with the Constitution in its assignment of powers and its protection of rights, and so I signed. By 2003, I had come to the conclusion that the most important parts of the Constitution were what I will confess law professors, which is what I am primarily, rarely talk about, which is what I have taken to calling the hardwired structures of the Constitution, not the glittering generalities. And I borrow that term from Robert Jackson, uh, probably the most interesting writer ever to serve on the Supreme Court, where in particular he referred to the 14th Amendment as containing glittering generalities. He's quite right. The Bill of Rights is full of quite inspiring, but also quite glittering generalities. Actually, the assignment of powers to Congress could be viewed also in those frameworks. So what is it that now draws, that makes me most interested in the Constitution and explains why I didn't sign it in 2003? And indeed, shortly after that, I wrote a piece for an online journal, Fine Law, trying to discourage other people from signing the Constitution because the National Constitution Center and Philip Morris, um, I believe, were co-sponsoring co uh, this sort of venture in citizenship across the country where you were supposed to see some constitutional documents, be inspired by them, and to sign them. So I wrote this piece explaining why I didn't sign, in essence, why you shouldn't sign either. And what did I focus on? <clears throat> it was, as I say, what I call the hardwired features of the Constitution. Uh, not the assignment of powers to Congress, not the protections of rights in the Bill of Rights, but such things as the fact that Wyoming, with 170th of the population, has the same number of votes as California does in uh, the Senate. It focused on the fact that the president has a veto power. I'm going to talk more about these things in the rest of my talk. This is simply an introduction as to what I mean by hardwired features of the Constitution. And everything I'm going to mention, I think, is a really unfortunate feature of our Constitution. I think it's unfortunate that the Senate is organized under an equal vote principle. I think it's unfortunate that the president has veto power. I think it's unfortunate that we have a fixed-term presidency of a kind that makes it better, in a grim sort of sense, to have a criminal than an incompetent as president. 
because we have a language to get rid of a criminal, but we have no language to get rid of an incompetent. Um, um, I think that life tenure on the federal courts, particularly the Supreme Court of the United States, is an idea whose time has gone, assuming that it made sense in the past. I think the Electoral College, uh, which repeatedly places people in the White House who did not get a majority of the vote, and on a very notable occasion in the lifetime of everybody in this room, that is 2000, placed in the White House somebody who didn't even come in first in the national election, let alone get a majority. That's actually the second time in the lifetime of people like Leif Carter and myself, because I believe that many political science and historians now believe, contrary to what had been thought, that actually Richard Nixon came in ahead of John Kennedy uh, in 1960. It depends on some very technical assessment of the votes in Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, everybody knew that Kennedy didn't have a majority, uh, but most people thought at least he came in first. Now it's not even clear they came in first. Um, so I think the Electoral College is a big mistake. Uh, we have the most difficult to amend constitution in the entire world, which is not, from my perspective, a compliment. Um, and so given the opportunity to sign the constitution, I said no. And then reasonably soon thereafter uh, wrote a book from which my remarks are taken. Uh, this will be the one moment of flat them. Uh, our democratic constitution where the constitution goes wrong and how we the people can correct it. Now, given that this is an attack on a basic document of the American system, and in fact, the point of the first book, Constitutional Faith, was to argue that the Constitution is a central document in American civil religion. So it's no small matter to attack this document and say that it's not serving us well. What I want to do is to begin by portraying myself as, in fact, a good American. And there are a couple of ways of doing this. One is to quote Thomas Jefferson. Because one of the things that I discovered in the course of writing this book is the degree to which I was more Jeffersonian than I thought I was. Uh, but let me simply read you a few sentences from Jefferson. Some men look at constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant, too sacred to be touched. They ascribe to the men of the preceding age, uh, he's writing in 1860, a wisdom more than human and suppose that what they did to be beyond amendment. I knew that age well. I belonged to it and labored with it. It deserved well of its country. It was very like the present, but without the experience of the present. And 40 years of experience in government is worth a century of book readings. And this, they would say themselves, were they to rise from the dead. And he concludes this letter by saying, each generation is as independent as the one preceding, as that was of all which had gone before. It has then, like them, a right to choose for itself the form of government it believes most promotive of its own happiness. And I think that Jefferson is quite right. Um, I think it is a huge mistake 
to treat the Constitution as an Ark of the Covenant, uh, to view it with sanctimonious and, to be quite blunt, um, I think often thoughtless reverence. Um, I think as a decidedly human document, to err is human. Uh, one can celebrate the framers, and indeed it's a very important part of this book, that there's not a single sentence criticizing the framers. Everything they did can be argued to have made sense in 1787. I have no interest in picking a fight with a generation of the framers. Rather, what I want to do is to suggest that Jefferson was right, that we should learn from experience, and the fact that the framers might have been great for 1787 does not begin to establish the proposition that what they established serves us well in 2007. <clears throat> Indeed, it seems to me that one of the most perverse aspects of some of the framer worship that we sometimes have in this country is that we go overboard in almost literally worshiping what they did in 1787, 1788, without taking into account that every framer was in his, and if we're talking about the late 18th century, it is only his. It would be false to history to say his or her. Uh, every framer in 1787 was a revolutionary of sorts who looked to the lessons of experience to, to try to figure out what indeed was necessary at the time. It's not only that these people had taken up arms uh, against the British Empire, and incidentally, with regard to the title of this evening's talk, uh, one of whose purposes was to draw you in here this evening. I'm very grateful to all of you who came, but I don't really uh, advocate taking up arms to overthrow this particular constitution. Um, uh, what I do advocate is a constitutional revolution that in many ways uh, would modify the constitution and from some people's perspectives modify it beyond recognition. Uh, but I'm not defending taking up arms. But it's not only that the founders had overthrown uh, the British monarchy. They also exhibited gross contempt for the first American constitution, that is the Article of Confederation, which were ratified in 1781. By 1787, were thought to be inadequate. That was the lesson of experience, and they ruthlessly disregarded the articles. One of the mistakes I made in my book was quoting only Jefferson, and indeed portraying Madison as something of a fall guy, because indeed it was James Madison in the 49th Federalist who went after his good friend Thomas Jefferson, who called for frequent constitutional conventions. And Madison, this is a terrible idea. What one has to do is to promote a veneration for the Constitution. <laughs> and any convention would suggest that there might be something wrong with the Constitution. And you don't really want to do that. And I do quote that part of Madison in my book and use it to counter the much more attractive Thomas Jefferson. 
But let me finish this introductory part by reading another, uh, the good James Madison, uh, in the 14th Federalist Paper, where he writes, is it not the glory of the people of America that whilst they have paid a decent regard for the opinions of former times, a decent regard in other nations, they have not suffered a blind veneration for antiquity, for custom or for names, to overrule the suggestions of their own good sense, the knowledge of their own situation, and the lessons of their own experience. I think this is terrific. Um, and I gladly subscribe to this part of Madison and so my real appeal to you this evening is not, I mean, I would like you to agree with everything I'm about to say. Uh, I'd be a little bit surprised if you did. My own family doesn't. Uh, but what I would at least view as an unequivocal success is if you would countenance at least the possibility that we should subject our own constitution to a rather ruthless examination and ask how well it has stood up after 220 years with regard to various lessons of experience. And to what extent those lessons of experience might suggest that we in fact borrow from what is best in our founding tradition, which is not mindless veneration, um, but rather a due regard, not only for the opinions of humankind, but also a due regard for their own experiences, their own situations, and a willingness to be extraordinarily unsentimental in drawing the lessons of those experiences. So let me march through the Constitution. Uh, what I'm about to treat is not necessarily a rank order of the worst to least bad or going in the opposite direction. The easiest way to proceed, especially for a law professor, is to start with Article I and march through the rest of the Constitution. Article I deals uh, with the legislature. So let's begin with the two worst features of Article I. First, what I've already suggested is the Senate, and secondly, the presidential veto power. Let's begin with the Senate. First of all, just to be clear, I'm not opposed to bicameralism. It seems to me there are very, very good reasons to believe that a country this large might well need two legislative houses. Now, as a matter of fact, most countries in the world are unicameral. Uh, so there's a real debate about unicameralism versus bicameralism. One of the things I would like to do, frankly, is to hear more conversation among Americans, among my fellow citizens, as to whether we'll, we would be better served by one house or well served by two houses. I tend to think that two is the right number rather than one, but as I say, I'd really love to hear an extended conversation about this. So on that, I'm completely open-minded. What I am not open-minded, I have to say, um, about is the allocation of power in the Senate. There are good explanations 
for why the founders believed the Senate made sense. James Madison, in fact, was adamantly opposed to equal voting power in the Senate. But he acquiesced to it because of an altogether correct belief that the only way we're going to get a constitution in 1787 is to buy off the small states, which never would have entered into what David Hendrickson, in a brilliant book entitled Peace Pact, uh, that it was very important to get a pact of these 13 rather contentious states. And the only way you could get it is to buy off the small states. Uh, I regret that in 1787, but I can understand why it happened. But there's no reason that we should feel stuck with it. Um, that any more say than we should feel stuck with what was perfectly sensible in 1945, which was the assignment of veto power in the Security Council of the United Nations to the five great powers after World War II, the then Soviet Union, uh, China, the United Kingdom, France, and the United States. Made a great deal of sense in 1945. It makes no sense whatsoever in 2007. Uh, there is no particular reason why France and the United Kingdom should have veto power. Uh, there is good reason why the United States, Russia, uh, and China should, but there's also good reason if you like a veto system at all, and we could argue about the merits or demerits of the veto system, why that veto system should include Japan, India, uh, Germany, uh, perhaps Brazil. Uh, but at the very least, this is a good example. And I think if we were talking about the United Nations, this would be relative and controversial. I, I very seriously doubt that anybody would come up and pound the table and say, well, FDR, thought it was necessary to have this veto system in 1945, and that's good enough for me. Uh, that's just, frankly, a silly way of arguing, even if you say it did make perfectly good sense in 1945. Well, that's my argument with the Senate. It did make perfectly good sense in 1787 for James Madison to capitulate because the alternative to capitulating was no constitution at all. Um, and putting slavery to one side one could well make the argument that it was better to have a constitution, kind of whatever its terms, uh, than, to, um, than to fail in that. But as I say, I'm talking about 2007. I'm not talking about uh, 1787. It seems to me there's simply no defense in a culture that takes seriously a notion that would have been unfathomable in 1787. That is one person, one vote. Uh, that was not part of eight, late 18th century discourse. Uh, for better or worse, I think for better, it is part of our own discourse. Uh, the Supreme Court, now, you know, 45 years ago, uh, struck down all of the state legislative systems that were built around what were called, sometimes described as little federalisms. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina, and each county had one senator in the 100-member North Carolina Senate. So Henderson County, which when I was growing up probably had about 30,000 people, had the same representation uh, in the North Carolina Senate as Mecklenburg County did, where Charlotte is located. And then it had probably about 120,000 people. I think now it's well over half a million. Um, and the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. Um, and uh, for very good reason. Not only is it offensive to principles of equality in the modern world, but it's also the case that bicameralism matters. 
there are a variety of bicameral systems. We have a system in which each house has an absolute veto power over the other. Uh, we're not like a number of foreign systems uh, that are bicameral, but there is a way of breaking deadlocks. We have no way of breaking deadlocks. So this means that the, uh, those who benefit from the malapportioned Senate have great power with regard to shaping ultimate legislation, because they can veto any legislation that comes from the House. The House has no way uh, to override the castles in the Senate. Now, does this have practical uh, consequences? The answer is yes. Uh, two political scientists, I think, have demonstrated beyond doubt that one of the consequences of our politics is that there has been systematic redistribution of resources uh, from the wealthier coastal states, the large states, uh, to the upper Midwest and the Rocky Mountain states. Now, that might be good enough reason for some of you to say, hey, this is terrific, uh, that if we have a political system that guarantees an excess of federal spending in the Dakotas and Wyoming, Colorado, uh, Arizona, that sounds good to me. Well, it may sound good to you. I see no reason why it should sound good to anybody, to the great majority of the American population who live in California, New York, my own state of Texas, Illinois, Michigan, and the like. It is simply a way, those of you who take economics, it's a way by which the small states can get rents from large states because of, from what my perspective, is the illegitimate political power that is given them by our Constitution. Let me answer a point that I should have spent a few pages on the book, and I've discovered in giving talks that say I should have anticipated this point. Some people defend the Senate on grounds that it's a way we defend the values of federalism. My answer is that that's completely bogus. That it may be true that the original Senate had something to do with defending federalism. If by federalism you mean defending the relative autonomy of state governments against national challenge. And how did this operate? Very simply, it operated because until 1913, members of the Senate were chosen by state legislatures. Now, this system started collapsing by the mid-19th century, but still, you can figure out why people who wanted to run for the Senate would feel some duty to pay attention to state legislatures, because if they didn't pay significant attention to the way state legislatures viewed their own interests, including preserving power in state legislatures, and they might be fired in the next election. The 17th Amendment gets rid of that connection with state legislatures, in part because by the turn of the 20th century, election of senators by legislatures was viewed basically as illegitimate that we're a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and selecting senators by state legislatures was viewed as no longer being government by the people. Government by the people is by elections. And that's what we've had, obviously, since the 17th Amendment. So there's no longer a connection between members of Congress and institutions of state government. The modern Senate is an affirmative action program for the residents of small states. 
Now, you might think that's a good idea or you might not, but that's entirely different from saying the modern Senate in any significant way safeguards genuine notions of federalism. There's one other point that I think is very, very unfortunate about both the House and the Senate. And that is the fact that every single official of Congress is a local official. Um, senators simply represent larger areas than members of the House. But there is not a single member of Congress who has a strong incentive to think in terms of national interests rather than local interests. Now, what you can say, and I'm willing to say this because this relates very strongly to my attack on the presidential veto, what I am willing to say is that it may be the case that Congress as an institution ends up supporting legislation that could plausibly be defended as in the national interest, but the wild card here is the excessive power held by small state senators in the, in the Senate, which explains why there is uh, this systematic redistribution of resources uh, to certain of the small states. Um, so in any event, this is my critique of Congress. I don't want to get rid of Congress, uh, given that I style myself as a little d Democrat. Uh, I think obviously Congress is very important. It is the most representative institution we have. I want to strengthen Congress uh, in many ways, the legitimacy of Congress, um, and, but these are my complaints about the present Congress. Now, I've said that we have a bicameral system. That's somewhat misleading because my argument is that the presidential veto, in effect, turns us into a tricameral system. That is, we have three houses to get through in order to get national legislation passed, not just two. Uh, you have to get through both houses of Congress. It's no easy matter, precisely because each house of Congress is elected on a different basis, different time schedules, and the like. But in addition, you have to run the gauntlet of the White House. And if the White House is controlled by the president of the opposite party, then this will be very, very, a very serious gauntlet at times. Law professors especially are obsessed with what we in the trade call the counter-majoritarian difficulty, which is simply the ability of the Supreme Court of the United States to declare invalid laws of Congress. And the argument is that why should the Supreme Court be able to invalidate laws that are passed by majoritarian legislatures? Say entire forests have given up their lives. Uh, to print books and articles on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. I'll talk a little bit about this, but not very much, uh, frankly. Because from my perspective, far, far more important than judicial review in explaining American politics is the presidential veto. Uh, there have been roughly 180, 165 federal laws declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court uh, since uh, 1800. Most of them are of no great significance. Um, um, and as I say, they add up. The significant and significant ones add up to 165 uh, times. 
There have been 2,501 vetoes, uh, presidential vetoes in that time. Again, you could say out of 2,501, most of them have been no significance. Let's say that 60% were of no significance. That leaves 1,000. Um, and uh, a, a significant number of that 1,000 really do involve important laws. More important, even in some ways, than the laws that are vetoed are the laws that where veto is threatened so that the president becomes an intimate participant in the legislative process. Um, I mean, it's not merely that the president has a duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, but we have also, as I say, turned the president into what Clinton Rossiter, a great political scientist of the mid-century, last mid-century, said that one of the hats the president wears is that of chief legislator, as well as commander-in-chief, as well as some other things. And quite frankly, I think there's no good reason to have the president as chief legislator unless you really want to make it as difficult as possible for any legislation to pass, uh, so that you are very risk-averse, you think the status quo is acceptable enough that you'd rather stick with any particular status quo than run the risk of passage of new legislation. Um, I'm not so risk averse. I think we take a big risk in sticking with untenable status quos uh, that can't be changed because of this tricameral uh, structure. Now, the defense of the president, presidential veto is not only the risk aversion, if two heads are better than one, then three heads are even better than two, and here's where judicial review enters. Some people say, well, and four heads are even better than three. So, so you have all of these quality control mechanisms um, looking at any legislation that might actually be passed. But an additional justification of presidential power is, well, the president really represents all the people. Whereas, after all, as I've already uh, suggested, no member of Congress represents more than a sliver of the people. Now, let me suggest why I think that argument is close to bogus. It is certainly true that the president represents more people and a wider area than any single member of Congress. Does this translate into the proposition that the president is a more representative official than all of Congress? I think the answer is absolutely not. And the reason is another thing that I really dislike intensely about our contemporary constitution, which is the Electoral College. And incidentally, a good thought exercise with regard to our Constitution, and you know, I'm, I'm more likely because of my age to have these conversations than uh, most of your students, but you can still readily imagine you're visiting abroad and somebody says, well, what are you majoring in or what courses have you recently taken? And you say, well, I've recently taken a course in American government. I've taken a course in the American Constitution. Well, that's interesting. We're one of those literally dozens of countries around the world uh, in, Eastern, in Central and Eastern Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in the southern cone of, of Latin America, uh, who are rewriting constitutions. 
you've recently taken a course, you've been thinking long and hard about the American Constitution. Tell us, should we adapt, adopt all of the things you have? If, in fact, you ask, especially political scientists who know more about American government than most law professors do, but even law professors, I've not run into a single person who says, oh yes, I would recommend that any country today writing a constitution would adopt the Electoral College as a mechanism for electing a president. Um, assuming you've decided in favor of a presidentialist system instead of a parliamentary system, which is another conversation entirely. For that matter, I haven't run into anybody who says, and it's a great idea if you have a Senate to give equal voting power to the smallest state or province uh, or whatever it might be called in your particular country. Uh, so there are a number of features of the Constitution which, in fact, nobody would recommend in a trip abroad being asked about advice in constitutional design. And so one of my pleas is to ask yourself, well, why is, it that, why is that the case? And if we're not willing to recommend these features of the hardwired Constitution. I mean, we might very well recommend the Bill of Rights and other of what I call the, more, the softer features of the Constitution. But if we're not willing to recommend these hardwired features to other countries, then why do we assume, without any serious thought, that they serve us well? So, going back to the Electoral College, the way the Electoral College works, and this has become stunningly obvious in the last two election cycles, but it's not that the last two election cycles are dramatically different from our general presidential elections. It's just that it's been more stunningly obvious that presidential campaigns have always been run not on the basis of getting the, maximizing the national vote, but rather maximizing the vote in the key states that can put together a winning electoral college majority. Um, this has been absolutely uh, obvious the last two uh, election cycles. My wife and I split our time between Massachusetts and Texas. In a very real way, if we hadn't otherwise been attentive to national politics by subscribing to the New York Times and the like, we might not have known there was a presidential election at all. Because for obvious reasons, neither candidate in 2000 or 2004 thought it was remotely in his interest to pay any visits to Massachusetts or Texas. There was no political advertising uh, in these states. In 2000 and 2004, elections, the election got concentrated on so-called battleground states. The base states that could be taken for granted uh, with the Democrats that included California, with the Republicans that included Texas, and then those relatively few states that were in play. So that in 2000, the year 2000, you would have thought that the most important issues facing the country were prescription drugs for the elderly, maintaining uh, the boycott against Cuba, 
uh, and maintaining strong support for the state of Israel. Because that's the only thing either of the candidates talked about in the last several weeks of that election. In 2004, you would have thought that the most important problem facing the country was the plight of steel workers in Ohio. Now, I happen to think the plight of steel workers in Ohio is important, but I think it's lunatic to believe that it had the degree of importance that you have thought it did from listening to presidential speeches. But indeed, the election did turn in Ohio. Ohio explains why George W. Bush uh, simply rejected all of his beliefs in the free market um, in slapping very, very high tariffs on steel imports uh, that earned him denunciation in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's not that he was converted to a different way of looking at the world. It was rather that he was already thinking of the 2004 election and knew that Ohio would be absolutely key in that election. So presidents, and I say this has been true going back all the way back. Um, uh, Abraham Lincoln got 40% of the popular vote, didn't get a single electoral vote, or he might have gotten one electoral vote in Virginia. Uh, but otherwise, he got no votes. Um, in the, what became the states of the Confederacy. He was a completely regional candidate. Um, if we had not had, I mean, you could say this is, this is a good thing about the Electoral College. If we hadn't had the Electoral College, we wouldn't have had Abraham Lincoln uh, as president. On the other hand, if we didn't have the Electoral College, you can make a very good argument uh, that we wouldn't have had the Civil War. Uh, then that brings up a side issue that maybe the war was a good thing because of slavery, but that is a side issue with regard to thinking about the consequences of the Constitution for the way it shapes American politics. So from my perspective, the major point I want to make is that the president it does represent a larger domain than any single member of Congress, but that given the Electoral College, it really is completely misleading to say that the president is the tribune of the national people um, because the, depending on the party of the president, the president may have no incentive at all to think very much of California or Texas, um, uh, and that this is entirely a function of the Electoral College. I mentioned earlier the fixed-term presidency, um, and I suggested there my principal criticism of the fixed-term presidency, which is that it, we feel disabled from responding to a president who has lost the confidence of the American public. Now, again, the fixed-term presidency might have made a great deal of sense in 1787 uh, when I am absolutely confident that the uh, framers had no possible conception of what the United States president would turn into. They might have imagined, I mean, Alexander Hamilton was certainly capable of imagining that the US president would become a very formidable figure. Uh, he liked energy in the executive and stuff like that. Uh, but it is literally inconceivable that Alexander Hamilton would have imagined the president would have control of a nuclear arsenal, uh, that the president would have control of a standing army of whatever it is, two or three million people, and who would feel empowered to send troops uh, literally anywhere in the world to defend his, or in the future, uh, presumably her, conception of the national interest uh, with minimal consultation with Congress. Um, and indeed, you know, sometimes I'd be very critical of the president 
for not consulting Congress. Other times you might say, look, we're in a world where decisions do have to be made rather quickly, and this requires that you have an office, a person in whom you really do have trust, that you believe that he or she exemplifies good judgment, and that you are quite literally willing to put your lives and the lives of your friends, your children, uh, your brother, sister, uh, in their hands. Now, it seems to me um, that the fixed term presidency runs counter to the degree of control that we the people ought to want to have when we come to the very ominous conclusion that the inhabitant of the White House is a person with bad unto dreadful judgment and that you would like to evict that person. Um, and I strongly endorse a way of voting no confidence in a sitting president and replacing the sitting president with somebody else. Now, I talk about some length in the book. I would not, in fact, allow the opposition party to take over the White House without an intervening election. Uh, the model that I have in the back of my mind is what the British Tories did with Margaret Thatcher, who was by any measure the most important peacetime prime minister in the history of the United Kingdom. Um, in 1990, they came to the altogether reasonable conclusion uh, that she had turned from an asset into a liability, uh, and they unceremoniously and unsentimentally got rid of her, replaced her with John Major, who went on to win the next election. Um, so um, I would propose, for example, but again, I toss this out not because I want to pound the table and say I'm confident this is the right thing to do. I'm confident we should think about the extent to which we are forced to live in an iron cage of a constitutional system that doesn't give us the alternative of getting rid of a president in whom we've lost confidence. I don't know exactly what the best possible procedure might be. Uh, but what I suggest in the book, for example, is that two-thirds of Congress meeting in joint session should be able to vote no confidence in a president, uh, and then that the Congressional Caucus of the president's own party pick the successor. You note, incidentally, that I don't mention the vice president, and that's for a very good reason, that there are occasions when, and Bill Clinton provided a perfectly good occasion, there were good reasons for people to believe that Bill Clinton had disgraced the presidency um, and that he actually should leave office. Um, and anybody who had that view of Bill Clinton, that he had personal peccadilloes that disqualified him further to be president, could not object to Al Gore taking over the office. Uh, so there the vice presidency would make some sense. Let me suggest that there's not a single person in the universe who believes that it would be desirable to get rid of George Bush and to replace him with Dick Cheney. Uh, that, that, that if you have lost confidence, single person in the universe might go too far, perhaps the Cheney family thinks it'd be a fine idea. But otherwise, within American politics as we know them today, replacing President Bush with a vice president would not be the answer. So you would need really just vote of no confidence in the administration in addition to voting no confidence in the particular uh, president. Um, 
Because I do want to leave some time for uh, discussion, uh, let me go through uh, the remainder. There are certainly other things uh, I'd be more than happy to talk about, but let me suggest, and, and they won't take so long, uh, a couple of other things that I find problematic. Uh, the next one, frankly, is not so serious. Uh, it's certainly not worth having a new constitutional convention for or organizing a new political movement to get rid of. But if actually we ever did organize a serious political movement of a Jeffersonian kind to scrutinize the Constitution and, in fact, to transform it in a number of ways, then I do believe that life tenure for members of the Supreme Court would be an idea that we would decide no longer makes much sense. Um, that there is no good reason for members of the Supreme Court to serve uh, for 25 or 35 or even 40 years. Uh, and this is not a particularly partisan point. Um, I would, in, in retrospect, it, it seems to me that it would have been just fine for Oliver Wendell Holmes to be bounced at the end of, say, 18 years uh, for uh, William Brennan and the like. And I say 18 years uh, not only because that's a hefty amount of time to serve, it would certainly protect judicial independence, which is an important value, uh, but it also divides easily by nine. So you would have a new appointment every two years. No single president could pack the Supreme Court. A party would have to win three consecutive presidential elections as well as control the Senate throughout this entire period in order to be assured of getting majority on the court. Um, and it seems to me that would be desirable. Uh, the last feature I want to mention, I do think, is one of the truly dreadful features of the Constitution, and that is Article 5, uh, the Amendment uh, Clause, which, as a practical reality, makes it next to impossible to amend the Constitution. Um, in the lifetime of the oldest among us here this evening, there has been only one amendment that could be said to be of any genuine significance. It's not, incidentally, the amendment that allows many of you to vote. That is, the 18-year-old, the, the 26th Amendment that lowered the voting age from 18 to 21, because I regret to say there's no evidence whatsoever that lowering the voting age has made any difference to American politics. Um, what has arguably made a difference in American politics is the 22nd Amendment, the two-term limit on the presidency. It may explain why Bill Clinton is not president even as we speak, uh, because I think there's no doubt that he would have run for re-election in 2000 were it not for the 22nd Amendment. Uh, but by and large, uh, there have been very, very few significant amendments to the Constitution since the Bill of Rights uh, the most important single uh, addition to the, to the Constitution probably is the 14th Amendment, and that has, to put it mildly, a very irregular history with regard to its proposal and its ratification. Uh, you can certainly say that the Income Tax Amendment and the 17th Amendment, the popular election of senators, was quite important, but that, they were almost 100 years ago. We have a system, as I say, which makes it as a practical matter, next to impossible to amend the Constitution. But that's not even necessarily the worst feature of, the fifth, of Article 5. What I regard as supremely objectionable about Article 5 is that it closes off 
discussions about the adequacy of the Constitution. Because even to suggest that the Constitution might be in need of some substantial repair is to sound like a mixture of a flake and a utopian. A flake because most people don't, in fact, um, wish to challenge the veneration of the Constitution. Utopian because even among people who recognize that there are serious deficiencies in the Constitution, and actually, at least since 1968, I believe, uh, Professor Cronin, I suspect, might know the details more than I do. But I think since 1968, there's been a substantial majority of the American population in favor of ditching the Electoral College. Um, and in fact, a, an amendment to get rid of the Electoral College, in fact, got the two-thirds vote in the House of Representatives, I think around 1971 or 72. Guess what? it didn't get through the Senate because the small states correctly believed they would lose power. Because the way the electoral vote is allocated, um, Wyoming not only gets a horrendous benefit in the Senate, but they get a measurable benefit, even the Electoral College. Um, and large states concomitantly lose out. Now, actually, it's a little bit more complicated than suggesting because in the 80s, there was another proposal to get rid of the Electoral College. And this time, it was liberal Democrats from the Northeast who led the attack because they persuaded themselves. And you know, there, there's an argument to be made for this that actually large states benefit because of another peculiarity of the Electoral College, which is the winner-take-all rule. Um, so that if you're a Republican in California today, you may as well not show up and vote because your vote isn't gonna count. Uh, it's not that people won't count your vote, it's that all of California's 52 or 53 electoral votes will go to the person who comes in first. Uh, in, my, in Texas, our 32 votes will go to the person who comes in first, even though even in Texas, there's about a 40% Democratic uh, minority. In, in California, I think Republicans have at least 40%, but it's as if we're not. But in any event, uh, the Electoral College has long been criticized. Nothing has happened. You don't have to be a flake to criticize the Electoral College, but if you go to people and say, look, we really should try to get rid of the Electoral College, or we should try to get rid of any of these other things that I've talked about, what they're going to say, even if they're sympathetic to your critique, is, look, you have to be kidding. It's just not going to be successful. You're asking me to write out a check for a political campaign that is almost certainly doomed to failure. Why should I do that? And so Article 5 not only makes it next to impossible to amend the Constitution, but it also makes it next to impossible to generate any sort of serious political movement by people who think rationally in economic terms. That is, they want to devote their resources to causes and campaigns that they think might be successful. And campaigns for constitutional amendment aren't among them. Uh, indeed, this is as true with the amendment to ban gay and lesbian marriage as any of the other amendments. Nobody, nobody believes for a moment that these amendments could possibly be successful. 
uh, they do serve certain useful political organizing purposes with the gay marriage amendment. Uh, but again, for better, in this case, for better, given my own politics, it's not going to happen. Uh, that, that will act, actually be added to the Constitution. But there's an even more pernicious consequence of Article 5 than what I've already mentioned, which is adopted from uh, social psychology and so-called cognitive dissonance. That if you're in a situation where you can't get out of it, can't get out of a certain sort of danger, then you're going to try to put the best possible spin on it. This isn't really an iron cage after all. These people who are in charge really aren't that incompetent. They're not that corrupt in, in other instances. Uh, there must be some virtues to them because it would be quite horrendous psychologically if you really did say, my God, I'm really trapped and there is nothing I can do. Uh, it's almost a version of the Stockholm Syndrome uh, where people who um, are, are kidnapped and kept in close quarters uh, by terrorists, whoever, end up saying, you know, they really weren't so bad after all because you're in a situation where you're absolutely dependent on their goodwill for your surviving. And you have every psychological incentive in the world to believe that they're really not so horrific and they will, in fact, treat you reasonably well. Um, and I think that the Constitution, in some very real way, infantilizes all of us because it discourages the kind of Jeffersonian conversations about the lessons of experience and whether we are well served by the Constitution we've got. The very last point, um, and we can pick this up certainly more in the discussion. The book is Our Undemocratic Constitution, Where the Constitution Goes Wrong. I hope that I at least have set out my argument in a reasonably coherent way as to why I believe the Constitution is undemocratic, where I believe it has truly gone wrong in a variety of very, very important ways. But then there's a parenthetical at the end of the title and how we the people can correct it. And so what is that about? Because I've already said that Article 5 makes it next to impossible for us to get out of this iron cage. Well, Article 5, for all of its deficiencies, also does talk about the possibility of a new constitutional convention. In fact, we've never had such a constitutional convention. Uh, but I believe we should try to initiate one. I believe that we should act through the Constitution to encourage 36 state legislatures to call a new constitutional, to encourage Congress to call a new constitutional convention. I also believe that we should petition Congress directly. The way I read Article 5, it isn't necessary for the states to petition for a new constitutional convention. It's simply a sufficient condition to force Congress to call a new constitutional convention. But I think there is no plausible reason to read the Constitution to deny Congress the power to call a new constitutional convention if Congress thought that was a good idea. And obviously, 
I think each and every one of us should write letters to Congress saying this would be a terrific idea. Now, I have discovered that most of my friends and family are appalled by the idea of a new constitutional convention. Uh, and that's what I want to conclude with. If you share that widespread notion that nothing could be worse than a new constitutional convention, then let me suggest that in a very, very real way, you have given up on the democratic experiment. That a constitutional convention does in fact rely, calling on a constitution for a new constitutional convention, does in fact rely on our having enough trust in our fellow Americans that we think we can talk to them. That they will come up with conclusions we may well disagree with, but they're not going to be crazy, they're not going to be tyrants, um, that we can in fact engage in genuine political conversation with one another, and the losers can accept the verdict because the winners will in fact respect some of the basic foundations of uh, constitutionalism, which indeed is that minorities have rights, there are limits on what you can do to people you disagree with, and stuff like that. What I believe is the case is that most Americans today are scared stiff of one another or are scared stiff of those people who are not part of a fairly tight circle of like-minded people. And I'm sure that we've all had conversations late at night in dorms, at dinner parties, or ever, in which we talk about how dreadful they are and how we are a small bastion of people who are fighting for truth, justice, in the American way, but you could never rely on anybody else to share those goals. And you really couldn't imagine getting a conversation with those other people and trying to suggest that we really do have a common project that we can talk about. And we can talk about how best to organize a government that would enable us to achieve that common project rather than the Constitution we have now, which I think, as I say, is dysfunctional in many ways to achieving any kind of project at all, quite frankly. So it's not that I'm naive about what happened in the 20th century and indeed other centuries. There is reason to be concerned about populist politics. There is reason to be wary of mass democracy. But here, I, I usually don't quote Churchill on this, because I'm not sure ultimately what he says is the kind of clinching argument that he thought it would be. But he's very famous for having said, democracy is the worst form of government ever invented, except for all the others. Well, there is a certain core of truth. And it does seem to me, as I say, that if democracy means, among other things, a certain sort of rational scrutiny, the kind that both Jefferson and Madison did call for, if democracy means 
that you indeed do submit to a majority um, and that you don't surround yourself with a set of institutions uh, that locks us into a status quo and makes it very difficult for any majority uh, because our Constitution in so many ways is geared to require supermajorities to get anything done. Then, as I say, I think we should admit that we're really not very much committed to a very robust notion of democracy. This has consequences not only for how we imagine our own project in this country, but of course it also has tremendous consequences for the neo-Wilsonian project that the United States seems to be engaged in right now about encouraging democracy abroad. Now, I don't, you know, it would be another lecture and then some to talk about the virtues and defects of that project. My point is that the United States has not come close to presenting a coherent notion of what it means by democracy. Um, and that it would be a good idea to start with a conversation about whether our own political system is adequately democratic. And if our answer is we really do have, if you end up disagreeing with me pretty much across the board and saying what, you know, what I think are defects of the Constitution are in fact its strengths, then I think the United States at the very least has a duty of candor to the rest of the world to say you should know what we mean by democracy is quite unlikely to be what most other people in the world would think of as democracy. We have this very, very special, rather esoteric notion of democracy. So in any event, I hope that I have at least explained, from my perspective, I hope that I've justified, but I hope that I've at least explained why I refused to re-sign the Constitution in 2003. And I hope that I've made at least a plausible argument for embarking on a conversation as one citizen to another, whether you're liberal or conservative, red state, blue state, or whatever, to embark on a conversation about the degree to which we are well served by a set of decisions that might have made perfectly good sense in 1787, but are highly problematic in 2007. Thank you.